And now, with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved, here is Dr. James Houck. Good afternoon, everybody, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity. Hopefully, finding your courage to reclaim that which has always been in you. Very excited to be with you here today and every Friday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, and any other time in between. Well, each and every week, these broadcasts are dedicated uh, to the integration of spirituality and our mental health. And it's all within the context of our relationships, the relationship that we have with ourselves, the relationship that we have with others, which could include family members, friends, co-workers, and so forth, and our relationship with God or the divine. Well, um, for those who have been following this program for some time, you've heard me say many, many, many times that I am a firm believer that all of us come into this world already equipped and graced with everything that we need for this life in terms of our, our giftedness or our skills, our talents, our strengths, character traits, and so forth. And yet, as we go along in life, as we get older, as we mature, and we go from childhood to adolescence to early adulthood, later adulthood, and so forth, and maybe due to some unpleasant experiences, we may feel as though we need to hide that giftedness, that uniqueness about ourselves. Or we're going to, you know, we'll push that giftedness way down so that others cannot see it. And you might be asking yourself, well, why in the world would anybody want to do that? Why hide what you're good at? Why hide your skills and your talents and your strengths and so forth? Well, it's um, easier than you would imagine because, uh, you know, going through some unpleasant things in our lives, you know, we may be told that, well, there's really nothing special to you. And maybe that person was coming from a place of jealousy or a place of uh, not understanding or a place of not being able to see their own giftedness. And so they projected that disappointment or frustration onto other people. Um, or we've gone through things, other things, and, um, uh, you know, we may have uh, had to hide those, uh, you know, those strengths or those, that giftedness way, way down, um, you know, just for the sake of survival. That, um, you know, maybe we were, you know, growing up in a very bad situation, you know, we suffered many forms of abuse or whatever, and we, for the sake of survival, we hid the very best parts of ourselves because we didn't either, A, fully understand the best, best parts of ourselves, and B, we didn't know whether or not we were going to survive, you know, whatever it was going through some sort of um, abuse situation. And that could be anything from just the emotional abuse or the physical abuse. Uh, there's even spiritual abuse out there that many people suffer, sexual abuse and, and psychological abuse as well. 
Okay. But, um, you know, there could be other reasons why people, you know, just hid their, their giftedness, shall we say. Um, but uh, this show is dedicated for helping you uh, have that courage to look once again inside yourself and reclaim your authentic voice. Okay. And the whole reason why I place this reclaiming authenticity within relationships is because we often receive these, you know, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual wounds in and through relationships. And yet we can also discover our greatest healing. And, and here's the irony of all this that we can, through healthier relationships, discover our healing, our strength, our peace, and forgiveness, and love, and so forth, okay? And I know that we are inside of a week, uh, just outside of Thanksgiving now, and uh, we consider the relationships that we have with our family members and friends and co-workers and so forth, and um, I'm always mindful about this time of the year that, uh, you know, uh, Thanksgiving is still I believe it's still looked at as the top um, holiday in which there are many domestic disputes in which the police are called to. Um, not too many people visit the ER on Thanksgiving. Um, that's more or less for 4th of July when people want to shoot off fireworks as well as drink alcohol. Not a good combination. Okay, but Thanksgiving is when, you know, families get together or they feel like they just have to get together or maybe they don't want to get together, but for some reason they're compelled to. And it usually starts with a comment or just past wounding that has never, never been healed. And before you know it, there is turmoil, chaos, fighting, and so forth. Okay. So, yeah, these relationships just might be within our own family and, you know, families and uh, co-workers and friends and so forth. But this is all the more reason why we need to work on our own transformation, our own healing, and, and to be in healthier relationships with not only ourselves, but also others. Because whenever we are transformed by our presence, we can transform others, and we can transform them by our love and grace and understanding. But first, forgiveness and kindness and compassion begins with how we treat ourselves. And then it expands from there, so that whenever we are compassionate with ourselves, we then can be compassionate with others, because we have this understanding. We have this understanding of where the other person is coming from, or the pain that they might be involved in, or even the, the wounds that they may not be able to put into words. And whenever we are forgiving with ourselves, we then can be more forgiving with others, because we know what it's like to walk around with unforgiveness and it, it gets very heavy you know to to carry all that around and whenever we're able to live in gratitude with ourselves and realize that every decision that we've made good bad positive negative I mean we don't have to label it but every decision that we've made everything every choice and so forth has led us up to even this moment we then discover how this opens up our hearts to see and live in gratitude with others. You know, but all in all, first and foremost, transformation begins with us. 
Well, I'm Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to visit the website, and that address is www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity. That's www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity. And just a reminder that these broadcasts are now podcasting in case you want to go back and listen again, or you can go back into the archives and listen to previous shows. And I just want to say one more thing before we actually get into our topic today, that uh, I just wanted to thank you for all your support that you have provided uh, this past year, and just like to say that you still have the opportunity to continue your support by becoming a monthly subscriber. Now, just a little uh, clarifying note on this, uh, a subscription is not required to listen to my talk shows, but it is greatly appreciated. Okay, so if you just go on the website there, and uh, you'll see with the uh, monthly subscription or the subscription tab, uh, you can choose any amount that you feel comfortable giving. And again, I just thank you deeply, deeply from the bottom of my heart for that. Well, speaking of hearts, I you know, just how is your heart today? I hope it is well. I hope you are well. And I hope that if you are even struggling a little bit today, that you'll be able to find the rest, the comfort, and the peace that you need. Well, today's broadcast is looking at dissolving the delusions of the mind. And again, this is picking up this theme of the alchemy of authenticity. And I'm gonna I'm gonna turn you know the alchemy of authenticity series into a book. So that that's a goal for 2022. Um, but this particular um, uh, program is just focusing on how do we dissolve the delusions of the mind. You know, it's not that we walk around with mental disorders, but there are times in which we have these distortions. You know, we think something is true when actually it's not. Because one of the things I run into the most when counseling others is the need to let go of a, a former concept or a philosophy or uh, an expectation or even assumption that just no longer serve us. I, you could call it stinking thinking or a cognitive distortion. And a lot of times what we think is real is not actually the case. And um, just out of curiosity, I was—I just looked up the phrase "stinking thinking," and did you know this? This was actually a term that's often used in twelve-step recovery programs that refer to the negative patterns of thought that that simply add fuel to the fire, shall we say, of addictions. In other words, these thoughts often sabotage our ability to see the world clearly and take responsibility for our actions. Okay, and the thing of it is with these, again, cognitive distortions, or if you want to stay with stinking thinking, is that they all sound good in our heads. And then we, 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 you know, say it, we speak on it, and we realize that once it came out of our mouths, whoops, we just can't put that toothpaste back into the tube. Okay, and, uh, you know, we just realized like, oh, it sounded good in our heads, but now that I say it, I realize that it's, Ugh, that, that's not the case. Okay. So a lot of times the, this, you know, process of healing, and I, and I do mean uh, it, healing is a process that involves an awareness of these inaccurate, but very personal beliefs that no longer serve us in healthy ways. 
you know, and, and here's a good example. Let's say that we walk into a room full of people who are just talking and laughing, and we want to find out, like, hey, what, what, is there a party in here? What's going on? But the minute we walk into the room and, and everybody sees us, everything gets quiet, except for a few crickets here and there in the corner. You know what I mean by that. Okay, and we immediately assume that everybody was talking about us or making fun of us or maybe we did something wrong or do I have something on my face? Did do I do I did I like, splash something on my shirt or something? All right. Um, so we just assume that you know it, it's something about us when clearly that's not the case, perhaps. And another good example is that, you know, perhaps, you know, you're in a, a job or a position at work where you get a six-month or a yearly evaluation, a review, okay? And your supervisor or boss sits you down and says something like, well, George, you're a great employee. You're on time. You do quality of work. In fact, I wish I had 10 more employees like you. However... There's one little area that we would like to see you improve in. And it goes on to explain what that is. Okay. And, you know, we might come away thinking that we are the worst employee that there ever was. Because all we can focus on is that one little area that was criticized and not all of the outstanding areas in our work. You know, we focus, why couldn't I just you know, be above any sort of criticism. But it, it you know, it was actually a, a very, very good evaluation. You know, there are some things you can work on to even improve and so forth. But we don't take it that way. And so we just, you know, we want it all or we want nothing. And so this is what I mean by this stinking thinking. It's it's like, you know, these are these distortions that we think they serve us well, but after a while we realize they don't fit anymore. They don't make sense. And why in the world are we hanging on to these? Okay. Well, at any rate, we often believe that what we see and, and what we hear, you know, are all that there is to see and hear. But again, this is simply not the case. In fact, in order for us to see things as they truly are, we need to dissolve the delusions in our mind, especially when it comes to understanding and embracing ourselves and others as living souls. I have a, a teacher in India who once shared a teaching involving the Vedanta concept of laya, which means to dissolve, especially to dissolve the delusions of the mind and our perceptions of our experiences. You know, what we think about things or, or how we feel about something and so forth. Okay, and um, he stated through this teaching that the, the mind thinks that what it sees or what the mind hears or what the mind tastes or touches or smells is truth. But these sense experiences can in no way reveal the truth of our existence. Okay, and, and, and let's just think about it this way. Suppose we walk by a demolition site where workers are dismantling a house, okay? A lot of noise, a lot of deconstruction and stuff like that. And once the house has been demolished, you know, they'll be left with bricks, okay? And if the workers dismantle even the bricks, now they are left with clay, or let's say the original state of the house's existence, 
Okay. Now, to the mind, the house and the bricks were dismantled, but they're no longer around. You know, they're no longer the objects to be seen or heard or held or whatever, because they've all returned to their basic substance, that is, clay. And all things have this capability to be understood as once having existed in their original substance. And yet, the key in dissolving this delusion in our minds of what we can see and hear and feel and taste and smell as real is to recognize an object or objects in their original state or substance. Okay, and here's another good example of this. There's a Taoist principle of Pu, uh, as understood in the book The Adventures of Winnie the Pooh then maybe you've read this or had it read to you, okay? But this word poo, uh, which is actually like poo, you know, as you're like blowing a, a feather, a poo sound, um, this principle of poo is translated into an image of the uncarved block, you know, an uncarved block of wood, meaning that things in their original state carry their own natural power. So let's say that, you know, we have this uncarved block of wood, okay, perfect in its shape and everything, and we start to manipulate it, or we start to carve the block and turn it into something else. Well, in the Taoist principle, it's just basically saying, now you've ruined its power. You've made it less than. And in the stories, I mean, go back and read Winnie the Pooh. It's, it's classic. Um, Pooh Bear is the embodiment of this uncarved block because he is, you know, simple-minded. He doesn't think too much about what life means or how to change the world to suit his desires. He simply exists in the world and takes it for what it is. And yes, once we carve the wood or we cut the wood, we can make all kinds of beautiful items from it. You know, we can make tables. We can make bed frames. We can make coffee tables and dressers and wardrobes and everything else. And for all of the beauty and more, you know, all of these items have one thing in common. They're all wood. Okay. Well, let's bring this idea of understanding or seeing things as their original substance into the world of us, into the world of humanity. Okay, because we at our base substance or our, our, you know, just our full existence here, we are souls. Now, we're, we're not the bodies that we see when we look into the mirror. I mean, yes, we can see ourselves when we look into the mirror, but that's not really who we are when you start to break it down. And yes, we have a body that needs cared for. It needs fed. It needs rested. It needs to be given medicines when it gets sick or diseased, but we are truly souls at the end of the day. And it's interesting, you know, when you think about it, all of humanity's problems come from not being able to see ourselves and others as souls. In fact, it could be said that we see just the opposite. You know, how many times do we focus exclusively on the externals? You know, we focus on a person's skin color, we focus on their gender, we focus on their age, we focus on their height or their weight or whatever. And all of these externals, as it were, has created these isms in our life, 
lives. You know, there's ageism, sexism, you know, and so forth. But now, when we can dissolve this illusion or, you know, delusion of the mind, we begin to understand one another in a whole new way. Now, many theologians and scholars and scientists down through the centuries have struggled to just accurately define what the soul is, let alone, you know, what is this relationship that we have to ourselves? Who is this God we serve, you know, and, and, and just what's going on here? Well, without trying to, to muddy the scholastic waters and the academic waters or the theological waters, here's my definition of what the soul is, okay? The soul is the purest essence of who we are that exceeds all physical, emotional, and psychological limitations, Strip everything else away in our lives, and it is our soul that is a divine mirror of the soul of the universe. I'll say that again. It's the purest essence of ourselves that exceeds all physical, emotional, and psychological limitations. Strip everything else away in our lives, and it is, it is our soul that is a divine mirror of the soul of the universe. And it is the soul whom God sees when God looks at us. Or as God put it, before you were born, I knew you. Now, I don't know about you, but that just one simple sentence I found in Scripture just blows my mind. Like, what in the world does that look like? And yeah, we don't have an idea of what that looked like. Okay, but we don't know that, you know, before we were born... You know, we were formless, and it's our bodies that gave us the form. I mean, just what did God see? What does God see? And so forth. All we know is that, poof, there we are. We have a body. But it takes pretty much the rest of our lives to figure out, look, you're not the body. You're a soul that, that, you know, became incarnated. You know, whenever mom and dad kind of found each other, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden we're there. You know, so we have a body, we're not the body. And it's not that we have a soul, we are the soul. Okay? The soul is not just something that we have as a result of being creative, but the soul is who we are authentically. I mean, we're not merely bodies that have souls, we're divine souls who have bodies. And in, and in this sense, it's our mind and our body that provide the form. Or as Joseph Rael would say, it provides this breath, matter, and movement to our soul, which is formless. Now, interestingly, as a reminder of this truth, you you find in the Judeo-Christian scripture, um, it notes the times when God, who is formless, dwelled in earthly form structures. Okay, there were the, the stories of, you know, God inhabited the, the Jewish tabernacle or God inhabited the Jewish temple. Okay, and you take it one step further, and in the New Testament, Christians also understand that the, perhaps the greatest example of God dwelling in a form comes from the Gospel of John, where the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Okay. And 
again, as we read these scriptural passages carefully, we, we do come to understand that, you know, through the life of Christ, you know, and how, how is, he has given people the example through service and love and mercy and forgiveness and etc., how to live as a soul in everyday life. And yet, we may still believe that there's nothing more to us than our mind and our body. I mean, after all, our, our physical nature strongly contends for our attention all the time. All the time in terms of hunger and thirst and fatigue and pain and sickness, procreation, etc. And yet, ironically, we often misunderstand an all-important lesson as we try to drown out the soul's cry for that divine connection by focusing instead on what our egos are projecting in any given moment. I mean, we may try to meditate and, and, and connect with that, then all of a sudden the stomach starts to growl, and we get distracted by that. And so, or, or another example, okay? But nonetheless, it's the cry of the soul in each of us to fully realize that we are primarily souls, and we long to have that connection and reconnection with God. Hello, reclaiming authenticity. Okay? And regardless of whether or not we have suffered trauma, paying attention to ourselves as a soul and listening to our inner cry moves us out of this illusion or dissolves the disillusion that a mind-body consciousness rules. And as important as they are, the mind and body are just merely vehicles, if you were to realize higher consciousness of the soul. And so when we listen attentively to the soul's cry, we become aware that everything we truly desire can never be reached by the mind and body, because these are driven by, let's say, ego and selfishness and fear, pain, pleasure, etc., and this is not to say that the mind and the body is, is all evil and the soul is all good. I mean, it was this kind of duality is what drove people in medieval times to punish themselves, you know, with physical wounds, believing that they could suppress their ego and their physical desires in order to become more righteous and holy in the eyes of others and God. Again, this is to misunderstand who we are as a soul. You know, we can never attain higher levels of God consciousness, our soul consciousness, through the mind and the body, because these forms are limited. So let's take this a little bit further, okay? You know, um, how differently would we live our lives if we fully realized ourselves as souls? How differently would we live our lives if we fully realized ourselves as souls? And we're able to see others as souls. And I guarantee you it would look a lot different than, than what it appears to be at the present moment. And I also suspect that we would also be so empowered to treat ourselves and all of our relationships with the fullest extent of kindness and love and patience, compassion and grace, that the world would then definitely sit up and take notice. Well, when I was in graduate school, I was first exposed to Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a means of understanding uh, human nature and a striving to achieve personal goals. And uh, this, this, you know, it's a good model. This model of understanding the self follows the logic that our lives go through certain stages of attaining personal needs. 
you know, such as food and clothing and shelter. And then we move to security and intimacy with others and then goals and life meeting and purpose, etc. And yet many people today believe that once they attain this self-actualization or discovering their life's purpose, you know, they discover their motivation, they discover meaning and fulfillment in their lives, then they will finally have found their life satisfaction that has long so long eluded them. And yet, many are often met with a harsh reminder that in attaining one's dreams and ambitions and goals doesn't necessarily guarantee happiness, let alone finding this inner peace. In fact, despite their accomplishments, people still sense something is missing from their lives. They can't put their finger on it. It's just they feel empty, even though they have so much. And so what's, what's the problem here? Is, you know, perhaps these feelings of disappointment with Maslow's hierarchy stems from this misperception that, well, we could say, okay, it's a flawed model. But I don't think that's the case. You know, uh, but I, but rather, I think that uh, we need to understand that this this model from Maslow is limited. In other words, self-actualization as that end-all, be-all of our lives can only carry us so far. But attaining true happiness and joy and peace in our lives comes not in the accumulation of things or degrees or accomplishments, but rather, these come from the grace of God's presence that can only touch our soul. Indeed, there is a greater depth of contentment and forgiveness and love and joy and peace, etc., that awakens in us when we fully realize ourselves as souls. And it is through God's grace that we are able to recognize our soul's connection to God and dissolve this delusion of the mind. And But still, this limitation of Maslow's you know, hierarchy of needs doesn't mean that self-actualization is a worthless pursuit. I mean, that's not what I'm saying at all here. You know, we all need to have our basic physical needs met. And we all need to have a sense of personal security and meaningful relationships and attainable goals in our lives. However, we must also understand that these earthly pursuits are always pointing us to a higher awakening of self-realization of who we truly are. And interestingly, we can learn this lesson as we become involved in healing intergenerational trauma. Well, I would really love to hear what's on your heart about this subject. So if you would like to call in, the number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008, and I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. Be back with you in one minute.
Okay, welcome back. I am Dr. James Hauk, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Again, I just wanted to thank you for your support over the past year and just invite you to visit the website and leave me your comments. And if you'd like to continue your support by becoming a monthly subscriber, you may do so. Just click on the subscription button, and if you choose any dollar amount that you feel comfortable giving, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Well, just before the break, I was talking about um, just our realization as as souls, and you know, just this is possible for for everybody. Okay, um, and then you know, as I just mentioned before, going on break, that uh, you know, we can learn a lesson of you know how to live as souls in this world by healing our intergenerational trauma because again it brings us right back into relationships and this is again looking at reclaiming authenticity and so forth um, healing from intergenerational trauma is a big part of this um, and I think the first thing we need to do in to start this healing process is to step outside our linear thinking of just things of like a past a present a future and take a leap of faith, so to speak, and fall into the grace of God that opens us up to this expanded consciousness, this expanded awareness. Because once we realize who we are, like once we realize that we are souls, we are then empowered to re-engage Maslow's hierarchy from a more life-giving inspiration that focuses not on an ego-driven achievement, but rather it enhances the value and dignity and worth of all relationships. Okay, so so for example, um, realized souls, you know, are no longer motivated to feed others just for the sake of alleviating their own guilt and filling empty stomachs. But rather, motivation comes from the awareness that by feeding others, they're also feeding souls with compassion and grace. And instead of spending time with another out of obligation, realized souls, or people who understand themselves as souls, instead see another soul, soul in need of friendship and love. And instead of forgiving others from the perspective of, well, what do I get out of this? We instead forgive because we're not going to allow people to carry around the crippling effects of unforgiveness and bitterness that we'll have on them and us as souls. I mean, all in all, as we bless somebody in the physical sense with food or clothing or shelter or whatever it is, we also bless them in the spiritual sense. In fact, when we meet the basic needs in others, these benevolent acts inevitably nudge them closer to discover who they authentically are as souls. I mean, never diminish even the simplest acts of kindness or compassion or grace, for these are truly the acts that can touch the soul and cause all of heaven to rejoice. I mean, even a cup of cold water can do this. Self-realization fulfills self-actualization. Well, you've also heard me say this before, but one of my all-time favorite books is The Alchemist. If you've never read it, you have to. Okay, Put that on your list for Santa Claus. Okay, Get a copy. You'll, you'll, you'll thoroughly in love it. 
Okay. And um, if you've ever read The Alchemist, you realize that Santiago, uh, the uh, Egyptian um, shepherd, uh, he has this journey that he's undertaking. He goes to the, uh, he wants to find the Egyptian pyramids to discover his personal legend. And ironically, his journey has literally brought him back to the place where he left initially. But the main point of the story is that Santiago has been on an inward journey because he himself has been transformed along the way. I mean, all in all, he clearly was not the same person he was when he left at the beginning. Or just as T.S. Eliot once said, let us not cease for exploration. And for all of our exploring will be for us to arrive at a place where we started and know it for the first time. And this was a very prominent theme in The Alchemist. It's this, you know, through the character Santiago that we realize that when we want something to happen, the whole universe will conspire so that the wish comes true. And this ties into the theme, you know, today, because this is something I truly believe in, and that when we pay attention to what has been placed in our hearts, and, and whenever we are able to hear the cry of our soul and we commit to it, the entire universe will make it happen if we remain open and teachable to every situation in our lives. And when we do this, we also discover that we may have been destined to embrace the cry of the soul all along. You see, throughout history, um, physical alchemy was and is concerned with altering and transforming the, you know, the chemical properties within like a solid matter, okay? such as changing lead into gold. But there's also spiritual alchemy, and it's concerned with freeing yourself or dissolving yourself, you know, or freeing your vast spiritual self, which is indeed being hindered within us by the unrefined parts of ourselves. In other words, our fears are holding us back. Our limited personal beliefs, okay, the stinking thinking, okay, the self-loathing, and so forth. All of these have to be dissolved because all of these will hold us back. Spiritual alchemy is vastly more multifaceted, and it's it's ongoing. It's it's this continuation or continual purification of our hearts, much in the same way that a smith is going to turn up the heat beneath a hopper that contains a raw mineral or a metal. And as the heats increase, this dross or the impurities are going to come to the surface, only to be skimmed off, making the metal purer than what it was before. And then this process is repeated over and over again and again until the metal reaches its finest purity that it can be. Well, we too are going through a process of a spiritual alchemy of authenticity, let's say. I mean, how often does it feel like the heat's being turned up through our past and current events, or even the past and current events through the world? And therefore, when going through the process of spiritual awakening, sooner or later, we are confronted with the fact that there seems to be so much more to ourselves than the reality we are living in and what we've grown accustomed to. 
And as we go through life and depending on our circumstances or experiences, we start to question what used to be true for us. Again, we come face to face, so to speak, with the way I was thinking before, or my philosophies, or my stinking thinking, used to serve me in a certain way, but now, not so much. It's just, I'm changing, and the, these distorted thoughts are, are just, no, they're, 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 they're just distortions. We see that. Okay. And ever since childhood, let's just say, we have a certain way in which we see ourselves or we, how we interact with others or God or even the world at large. And whenever we go through an experience that shakes us up or, shall we say, shatters those assumptions, we feel as though nothing makes sense anymore. And we don't even know which way is up. We have just lost all sense of our bearings and we just don't know, you know, now what? What am I going to do? Where am I going to turn? To whom can I turn? And this can be a very unnerving state or place we find ourselves in, especially if we feel like all of what we have known is starting to crumble and evaporate. I mean, we can become so unsure of not only ourselves, but also whether or not if all we see is all that there is. And yet, we are the ones who weather those storms. And as we're doing that, we may also discover that something greater than ourselves is tugging at our soul. I mean, you can call it a stronger nudge from God or more uh, intense dimensional energy or even a hunger that resonates deep within by compelling us to go and search to discover the vastness of who we truly are. And as we go on this journey, we discover that there are things we need to identify and let go of and transform in order to embrace higher, more intense dimensions. Or in other words, rising above the, the negative mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual triggers that keep us from experiencing the fullness of unconditional love. And this phenomenon is at the heart of, a, let's say, the multidimensional understanding of spirituality. And as I said, as we take a look at, you know, what part of our intergenerational trauma or just down through the generations and seeing people for who they are and those who have come before us, as we listen to the cries of our ancestors, it, it often compels us to heal our relationships with them. And as well as to begin to interact with people on a cellular level. Okay? And yet is self-realization, this realization of uh, who we are as souls, powerful enough to transform social systems that promote oppression or prejudice and control? Many people would say that the, the more we understand that the history of humanity, transforming systems is impossible. In fact, there are some who consider systems to be suspect in and of themselves and therefore choose to work outside the system. And then there are some people who choose to remain within a system and work with individuals to create change. I mean, whatever your preference is, you can certainly say, you know, uh, for certain uh, that self-realization transforms people. 
transforms people from an ego-driven conscious to now a soul consciousness, which in turn has an impact on systems. And one day, a former student of mine put it very succinctly, um, just a great way to, you know, like for people who choose to remain in systems. You know, this, um, she, she basically said that we ought to never allow the coldness of an institution to discourage us from finding the warmth of individuals. Never allow the coldness of an institution to discourage us from finding the warmth of individuals. And this is a very profound statement. In fact, I feel the more we embrace the, the, the fact that all persons are souls, the more awakened we are to change the world. The more we see that change is possible because we change it one heart to another heart, one soul to another soul, and so forth. And although we can understand the historical impact of, let's say, governmental or educational, religious, and other social systems, it is their dysfunctional interconnectedness that often reinforces these negative behaviors of oppression and prejudice and abuse of power. I mean, we see that going on today. But if we truly believe we can create a lasting change in ourselves and others and this world— then we're going to have to admit that transformation is difficult, not impossible. The transformation is difficult to achieve within the present dysfunctional systems that's, that just simply resist change. Okay? So let's just you know, toss out another example here. This, let's say a dysfunctional system uh, that perpetuates, like intergenerational trauma. You know, because it's the system that typically distorts the message of what they believe endows humanity with its value, dignity, and worth. And furthermore, humanity's motivations and behaviors are inaccurately assessed, perhaps along the lines of productivity and consumerism over and against placing value on a person as a soul. In other words, you have value in society if you buy much, if you sell much, if you consume much, and so forth. Where it should be, you have value because you take a breath. And again, let's go back to the isms that are all based on externals. Skin color, gender, again, height, weight, what a person does for a living, you know, there are degrees and so forth, all externals, all external things that, that you know, we see and we hear and, and so forth. But again, it, it does not encapsulate the entire end-all, be-all of a person. Because when we see a person as a soul, we, you know, we see that there is so much more to them, this vastness, and that's where their value, dignity, and worth lies. Okay. But... Again, when humanity's motivations are inaccurately addressed um, and they place like consumerism or productivity over against the placing of value on a person as a soul, um, if the dysfunction or this illusion is never addressed or healed or removed, then the ramifications of these attitudes and behaviors affect generation after generation after generation and so forth. 
And unfortunately, some present systems have been broken and dysfunctional for many generations. And if they do not change, they will continue to deteriorate. And yet, transformation is always possible because systems are made up of individuals. And indeed, their dysfunction in inter- or intrapersonal relationships will always come to light because their thoughts, speech, and behaviors arise out of their emotional, psychological, and spiritual wounds. And moreover, such wounds hinder people from awakening to who they truly are and remain unable to embrace their soul consciousness. And this inability, you know, is not a fault issue. It's not a character flaw, but it just might be where they are on their, you know, path in life. You know, a, a path that can be liberated towards self-realization at any given moment. Well, throughout the centuries, shame and guilt has often used been used in society as a means to control people. You know, to shame somebody into feeling a certain way about themselves and or to make people feel guilty in order to get them to do something. Well, unfortunately, society has on more than one occasion interchanged these words to convey its disappointment in others. Uh, so let's say, you know, people often hear, well, shame on you or you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And immediately there is a sense that something is wrong and somebody is disappointed. But with shame, people internalize that message to mean there's something wrong with me, or I'm flawed in some way. I don't measure up to another person's expectations of how they see me. And yet guilt, on the other hand, is not necessarily a negative feeling. Nobody likes to feel guilty, but it does communicate to us that, let's say, we did something wrong. And now it gives us the opportunity to go back and fix the error or ask for forgiveness or whatever. So there's always, you know, an opportunity, a restorative property of guilt. And in this context, guilt also has the potential to be healing and life-giving in relationships. And yet guilt can also, you know, wrongly be manipulated by some to coerce others to do what they want them to do. I mean, you might even hear certain phrases like, after all I've done for you, or even so-and-so thinks this about you. And yet, shame and guilt, as well as stereotypes, prejudices, and sexism, classism, racism, here we go with the isms again, can find no place in the language of the soul. Because once we become firmly rooted in our soul consciousness, Manipulation in the form of shame and guilt no longer touches us, no longer affects us, okay? And again, it's the manipulation in the form of shame and guilt that's not going to have that same effect. So in this one example, the more we see ourselves and others as souls, the more we're able to transform and transcend these beliefs that no longer serve us, okay? You're getting the connection here? Because when this awareness occurs, not only do our relationships take on a healthier tone that transcend time and space, but also we start to understand the futility of waiting for systems to change. We're all beautiful souls made in the image of God, full of inherent value, 
you know, just filled with dignity and worth. And yet we may struggle to accept this truth because our attention is often diverted to focus solely on outward appearances and behaviors. In other words, uh, we all live with some degree of ignorance of our soul consciousness. Oh, we may get a glimpse of it every now and then, but we never attain the full extent because the physical, emotional, and psychological issues and how it clouds our vision of who we truly are. I mean, yes, diseases and illnesses do afflict us in the body. Yes, we feel physical and emotional pain with so much intensity at times that we believe that they're going to break us in two. At times, our lungs may struggle to take a breath, or hunger and diseases cause our stomachs and intestines and bones and muscles and blood to scream in agony. And these experiences might, you know, just might make us question whether or not we are the soul whom God has created. And however, this illusion lies not in the suffering, pain, and agony we experience, but rather it's in our perception that there's nothing more to us than an emotional, intellectual, and physical body. Indeed, physical and emotional pain and suffering can temporarily drown out the cry of the soul, but our soul is never silenced. Furthermore, the, the truth is that the, the greatest strength of who we are as souls lie in the ability to transform and transcend the physical emotional, and psychological limitations. For as much as history has shown us the horrific crimes humanity has done to itself, there are just as many stories, if not more, of humanity rising above such tragedies to heal and reclaim their soul. Can we see God in our everyday lives? Absolutely. It's just a matter of looking for God often in the most unlikely places and often through the most unlikely people. Unfortunately, down through the centuries, there's been a need to control people's quest, shall we say, to experience the fullness of God in those unlikely places and through those unlikely people. Spiritual discoveries and encounters have often been attempted to be squelched out of fear that they occur outside the bounds of what is deemed as appropriate or timely. In fact, there was and and is always an emphasis for people to look for God. As long as, let's say, you know, you look similar or act similar or think similar or worship God in a similar manner. But anyone who has ever felt the transformative power of God has always, sooner or later, had to contend with transcending those bounds imposed by societal structures. And that's whether or not those bounds are educational, religious, judicial, or whatever. But one thing we have to keep in mind is this. It's not the physical structures that need to be transcended if one is to grow and evolve into embrace their vast self as a soul. It's the prejudices and the attitudes and the stigmas that have galvanized those structures for centuries that need to be transcended. For me personally, I shifted my prayers from my head to my heart, and especially meditating on my soul connection I have with God. 
And whenever I did this, and after a while, I started to see and hear all the layers of woundedness in me. Again, not in the malicious way that God brought to my attention, but instead being shown all the things that needed to be healed. The, you know, the psychological, emotional, spiritual wounds that clouded my sight and sound of seeing and hearing the Spirit of God more clearly in my relationships. Grace-filled moments. Teachable moments. Life-changing moments. It's true. As we reach out to another in the physical sense, we also reach out to them in the spiritual sense. We often make it harder or more complicated than what it needs to be. But yet God says to us, you can do what you can do. That's all I ask. I'll take care of the rest. And if we ever want to see extraordinary grace, we just need to pay attention to the ordinariness in our lives. Well, you've been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. I'm your host, Dr. James Houck, and thank you for spending this hour with me. I really, truly appreciate it. Please leave me your comments. I'd love to hear back from you, interact with you at some point later on. Uh, but until next week at this time, everybody be safe, be careful, behave yourselves, and be well. Take care. Bye-bye. <coughs>